Welcome to the great unknown, global cultural explorations. We venture into the unknown for us and discover treasures that we can bring back to share with you. Welcome to the great unknown with me, James Harris. And me, Wolf O'Neill. We are here because we like to find out more about the world, challenge ourselves to expand our horizons and share those discoveries with you. We're not asking where places are anymore. What we should be asking is, what's the world all about and how does it work? This is the map of the great unknown and we're going to fill in some unexplored areas. We're going to be looking at things such as culture, art, entertainment, history, history. yes, uh, <laughs> literature. And that's uh, just the beginning. Why don't you come and share your discoveries with us? Because that's the main thing. We have some ideas, but we want to collect yours, and that will help us expand our knowledge further, and yeah. hopefully introduces everyone else. It's the people we meet every day that make us go, oh, this is interesting. And where can people find us? Ah, oh, so people can find us on Facebook and Instagram, at the Great Unknown Pod. You can email us at thegreatunknownpod at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at greatunknownpod. We're also, um, in terms of where you want to find us uh, and share it with your friends, whatever app they use, we are on it. Any good ones. We are on... And the bad ones. And even the bad ones, absolutely. Some of them are terrible. So, but we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Blueberry, Pocket Cast, and our hosts Podbean, just for starters. So if you enjoy the podcast, please do subscribe on whatever platform you use. That would be marvellous because uh, it makes us look good, basically. So thanks. And uh, you'll also get every episode delivered automatically, so you can just listen to it and whenever it comes in and share in the joy with us. Please do leave us a review as well uh, and a rating, because that also helps us. And then the more people can come and join us and have some fun. Cracking. So, what have you been up to since last time we recorded, Wolf? Oh, no. Uh, absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, Wolf is really the more boring of the two of us. But it's because I've been, getting, I've been working tirelessly, getting ready to record this and then go on holiday tomorrow. So... Where are, you going? are you going on a nice spa retreat? Are you going to get pampered? Are you going to have like face masks, mud baths, that kind of thing? Uh, maybe. Ooh, exciting. I guess in theory that could happen. Um, I'm off to the Picos de Europa in uh, northern Spain. Oh. So I'm uh, going to go do some walking, do some uh, swimming, hopefully. Visit some coastal Spanish towns. That's reminding me of my holiday with Dom when I went to Barcelona when I was 16. And... Uh, we didn't know how to drink, but we tried a lot. And Dom and his parents were having breakfast the next morning and the tent flat was open while you were lying naked in there asleep. Fully starkers. <laughs> and his mum saw everything. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, I don't know if you've forgotten and now you might listen to this and be have flashbacks that are horrific. But Well, you can tell us about that on the next episode at least, Wolf. And hopefully uh, Millie's parents don't see you starkers as well. Uh, otherwise, that's gone really, really badly. <laughs> Your other podcast could get interesting, which you host with with Benny's dad, David. Uh, but what have you... Well, okay, so I've not been up to anything. Had a relatively quiet few weeks. But what have you been up to, James? I've had a busy month. I've been working ridiculously the last week or so. But I have been along to a few things. I uh, went to axe throwing for the first time in London, which is bizarre. Um, Were you good at it? No, I was terrible. I got knocked out in like the first round. And <laughs> uh, but my housemate Becky was incredible. She was just lobbing the maxes, bullseyes. She, I think she got to the final competition. So pretty badass. Nice. Besides that, we also went along to go and see some Malawian music uh, that was playing in a really cool community garden in London, Dawson Eastern Curve Garden, which is great. And another thing about living in London, you just get to bump into so many different bits of culture here and there. Really, really, really enjoyable. And loads of people got dancing on a Tuesday night. So can't complain. I had a tour around the Guardian offices because a friend of mine 
works there. Um, she showed me around the newsroom and everything, which was really fascinating because it seems to match up with their ethos. It's a very plain office. There's no special airs or graces for, for anybody there. And it's just a huge bullpen of computers. I imagine back in the day, it would have been typewriters and telephones. Now everyone's just got a computer. And that's just where everything is done. Everything's just done on computers. It's a huge swathe of computers. But they did have some really cool little bits that had an old printing press uh, model from the 1800s in um, one of the landings just to show you what it would have been like. And you see how they like press down the the huge plate with all the print on it onto the paper and that's what you know makes the print the history of the founding of it's quite quite amazing as well i didn't realize that it actually came out of the peterloo massacre that a few of the people that were involved in responding to that started the guardian newspaper to be independent um so it's not owned cool. by any major corporation like a lot of others which is yeah, it was very interesting and their sort of design ethos of their buildings reflected that i thought and they had a really, really amazing exhibition by some photographers from Kabira in Nairobi. And it was powerful, shocking photos, actually. And from people who had grown up there as well. Uh, they'd been featured by The Guardian as well. And then they, so they always have a little exhibition in their foyer. I'm going to stop you there. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a future episode. We also, uh, a film that we've both seen now is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Absolutely brilliant vampire, but using it in a way that explores Iranian culture. So if you get a chance to check that out, I think it's on Amazon Prime. Um, have a look at that. Really worth a little look. Really entertaining film. Uh, if you like, let the right one in. Think of it like that, but with a cultural reflection of Iran, which is... How cool it. and smart is the image where... She's skateboarding, but it kind of looks like a vampire in a giant cape, like flying. Oh my god, it's amazing! <laughs> it's a really visual film as well, really beautifully shot. Also, during September, I just wanted to add in that I'm doing a charity swim. I'm swimming an accumulative 22 miles across the whole month to raise money for the British Red Cross in their Miles for Refugees challenge. 22 miles is the symbolic distance between Calais and Dover. If you'd like to find out more about that and even make a donation if you want, um, please go to milesforrefugees19.everydayhero.com forward slash UK forward slash James hyphen four. Or you can get in touch with us on our social and it's also in my bio on Instagram at JAF Harris. So, yep, whatever works. Um, but if you want to find out more, um, please do have a little look. It's an issue that both of us are very interested in. Um, we're thinking about doing an episode or two looking at things like borders. So please do send in any questions you have on that and anything you'd like us to look at for the future as well. And perhaps uh, next month I should hopefully have some interesting wild swims to, to tell you about. And hopefully I'm going to try and find some rivers and lakes as well as swimming pools. So yeah, an average of just over a kilometre a day though. So uh, got to be fairly consistent and uh, find the time. So it's definitely going to be a good challenge. So thank you for your support in that. We're much appreciated. Uh, anyway, thank you and on with this week's episode, which is definitely a less sober topic because this week it is alcohol. Yeah, what's the short idea of the week that is going to kind of lead us in? So to start out this week's topic, we've got a quote from Homer's Odyssey. It is the wine that leads me on, the wild wine that sets the wisest man to sing at the top of his lungs, laugh like a fool. It drives the man to dancing. 
It even tempts him to blurt out stories better never told. Classical culture's just full of references to alcohol because alcohol's been a part of society for as long as we, you know, recorded history and we're still finding archaeological evidence for it. So we're going to start with looking at the history of alcohol and where in the world it's been and what actually is alcohol. Um, and one last quote to kind of lead us in, and this is a fun one from uh, The Simpsons. Here's to alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. That's a brilliant quote. That's definitely a short idea of the week. So I thought I'd put that one in there. I was going to do Euripides, but no thank you. <laughs> so do you know much about alcohol and the earliest records of it being consumed by humans? I know that we can, or some scientists believe, they can trace back evidence of early fermented drinks. So ancient Chinese civilizations or the Sumerians were making quite a lot of beer and the Egyptians were heavily involved in, I think they started producing the first kind of organized fermentation systems and distilleries. And essentially we've been experimenting with producing alcohol long before we ever learned how to read and write. And it's been a part of civilization and humanity since the dawn of time yeah we're going back to the neolithic era at the very least in the archaeological record there's a guy called patrick mcgovern at the university of pennsylvania who uh, is a researcher a lot to do uh, does a lot of work on wine and he has books about the archaeological records from like the shang dynasty which is a thousand bce and there's inscriptions about it and how to make it and that's mainly rice and millet wine and there's a whole record of the process and there's three different types of uh, this kind of wine in china that are recorded which is chang li and zhu but the archaeological evidence that's that's in inscriptions in writing that's once we've discovered that and been able to record it but archaeologically people are still finding lots of pots and things that by their design suggest that they're involved in fermentation processes and so that's going back five thousand years before that as well so yeah we're going back a long long way and and the most fascinating thing is that Alcohol has been being produced and continued to be produced by every group of people throughout the history of mankind. Wherever you live, you use whatever resources you have. So whatever you can ferment in order to produce the sugars and and construct the alcohol that you want, if you only have the access to uh, yaks, so you, you have absolutely no vegetables, no grains, barley, anything like that, then they ferment yak's milk. Well, this is common in the Central Asian steppe sort of area. Yeah. And that has it ends up with a percentage of about six or seven or something like that. Yeah, like a light beer. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea is if you've got potatoes, you make alcohol from potatoes. If you've got corn, you make alcohol from corn. If you've got fruit, you use fruit. Whatever people had as their resources is what they used. And it also makes sense that we began to discover alcohol before we really knew what it was because food would naturally ferment given the climate and how long people have leave things and precipitation and people accidentally discovered that they had produced this unusual substance and the effects that it would have on them and then they kind of were able to actively reproduce that once they realized how it was being made you were telling me about the drunken monkey theory okay so i don't know how much this is grounded in scientific fact and i don't know how much the overall community agrees with this 
but it's a theory that has been put forward that very early primates, when they lived in the trees, that the fruit that they would collect would drop from the trees and would rot on the forest floors. And it, as it fermented, it would be obviously become fizzy and slightly alcoholic. And that when monkeys learned to come down from the trees to retrieve those delights, that was <laughs> what they were. Yeah, that absolutely. Been, that was a tasty-ass treat. <laughs> they, uh, it would have been the next step in evolution, which led to where we are now. And some people believe that um, that eating these fruits is perhaps what led us to have a surprisingly good tolerance for breaking down alcohol in our digestive systems. And that actually the rotting fruit would have been easier to find when you were searching for food in the forest. If you could identify them because they were giving off more scent, etc., then they were a greater source of energy, uh, an easier source of of food and if the the ones that could find that would be the ones that were the strongest the fittest thus they would survive and pass on an evolutionary trait which basically meant that they um they succeeded and uh it kind of passed that on so to there's us. a theory that alcohol might even be involved in human evolution which is quite stunning you mentioned that the fruit ferments but what we actually wanted to do was what we've been researching is actually what is alcohol and how is it made because i actually i've been drinking whatever alcohol i can as frequently as possible all the time and i just i still don't know very much about what essentially alcohol is and how it's made and so there are three main types of alcohol and you mentioned the word fermentation and that's a key part of it but let's just try and explain the three main types of alcohol and how it's made how it all works and so the three main types are beer wine and spirits did you want to start with beer um okay yes i'll go ahead so uh the four main ingredients of beer in general terms are barley water hops and yeast what you want to do is extract the sugar from the grains which is your barley so that the yeast will turn into alcohol the sugars become ethanol and co2 that's right the yeast uh, has enzymes that basically eat the sugars and that becomes uh, that that gives off two substances. One is carbon dioxide, and one is alcohol, which yes. is the active ingredient in. And that's going to be the same for almost all of this. So when you're making beer, though, you need to malt the grains first. So you need to heat them. You need to prepare the enzymes ready for the brewing. Then you want to mash them with hot water and steep them so that the enzymes are activated and they're going to be able to break down the sugars. This is going to lead to the production of wort. The water is boiled, the hops are added and the spices, and that kind of produces the bitterness and adds the preservatives and combats the sweetness of the sugars. And then you ferment it and that's when the yeast is added and you store it in a cool place for a few weeks and you allow the yeast to turn the sugar into the alcohol that you want. Exactly. And any variance in that process is just about the flavouring. Yes. So wine. Wine is, it also relies on Fruit yeast. Fruit of the gods. <laughs> wine also relies on yeast to uh, react with the sugars and turn it into alcohol but essentially wine is literally just grape juice with yeast added yeah what, what's the difference between uh, red wine and white wine basically very little they can be made from exactly the same grapes but it's the skin that gives the darker coloring to red wine so i don't know how you extract the juice without the skin so much for white wine but it's essentially the skin that gives it the, the darker colouring. 
that's it there's no special ingredient it's it's all just grapes and yeast and then is it that if you're making rosé you leave the skins in for a little bit longer and then you take them out part way through the process after it's added the kind of yeah, pinkish hue to it yeah it's just a mix somewhere in the process yeah there's a little bit of skin basically <laughs> that sounded so <coughs> disgusting thank you thank you i always try spirits so beer we've said is a grain uh spirits actually very similar because it's also grains that have the water added and then yeast added but then it goes through an additional process of distillation which is where it's boiled so that because alcohol separates out at different levels so it just goes through a different series of boilings single malt whiskey for example is made out of malted barley water and what's key is the water that you use as well because what what i didn't realize is how important water is in beer and spirits because that's essentially what makes it fluid in in wine it's juice it's it's the literally the juice but i always was thinking how is barley uh how is a grain turns into a liquid but it's you just add water so it's the water you add is actually a big part of that and in in whiskey as we might have mentioned on a previous episode when i went to the ben nevis distillery the thing with ben nevis is that they they use literally the stream that comes off ben nevis so that is a part of what gives it its unique flavor and that's a big thing for any distillery in scotland it's the particular stream or burn that they use that gives it the flavor excellent pronunciation thank you thank you did you know that the monks and monasteries have been responsible for quite a lot of the history of brewing of beers and the production of whiskies and various other alcoholic substances kind of throughout european history in particular because they were the sites where people were most educated people could read and write they were the cleanliest people and they were quite organized so when they started practicing these and developing their recipes and their strategies for brewing they were able to not contaminate the water they were able to follow the rules of the of the recipe they were able to pass that on to other generations so they could continue them it it was like knowledge that was that was kept by a, a few key members of society and in the early days although everyone could experiment and make alcohol it wasn't going to be efficient on the level that we associate it with now yeah so monasteries are probably the earliest kind of organized alcohol production places whereas there's a huge culture throughout the world of basically homebrewing and so you get loads of different varieties and lots of countries have their own unique types of drink that they have that are particular to that culture and so some of the ones that we've come across for example Roxy in Nepal is a millet based drink that people just brew at home and it's pretty powerful stuff and you can mix it with uh, either mountain dew or uh, juice of some description that actually gives it, <laughs> it makes it a little bit more palatable when, when i was in nepal for a few months roxy was what you drink a lot of because it's so cheap in comparison and literally there were people on the mountainside we were living on that brewed it themselves can you order a roxy on the rocks i mean i'm sure you can Hmm. Um, but you know ice is not really easy to come by in uh, sort of high mountain villages unless it's full winter season I imagine it's probably slightly easier but one last cool thing to mention about the the monks 
um, is that in 1725, when the English malt tax was put in place and Scottish distil- uh, distilleries were shut down or they had to go into hiding, uh, and generally when things would happen like uh, the Reformation and Henry would kind of abolish a, a lot of the religious uh, infrastructure that existed. Henry VIII, we're talking. Yes. The Reformation is when... Uh, he wanted to uh, divorce his first wife so he could marry his second wife and the Pope wouldn't allow it. Um, so he so split he, from the Catholic so he Church. Was like, and... Yeah, get stuffed. I'm going to do what I want. Um, but what this caused was there were a lot of these educated people who were making these recipes, distilling these drinks, selling them to raise profits to fund the church and keep the upkeep. And then they didn't have a home anymore. They didn't have a job. So in order to make money and survive, they started taking the practice that they developed and going into the towns and communities and traveling around and then setting up brewing systems and distilleries. And then that knowledge was then more disseminated through the people and is probably the foundation for quite a lot of the the the, the big structures that we still have in place now, the ones that have been brewing and distilling for a long time. Yeah, monasteries definitely in Europe have a big big part to play in that. Elsewhere in the world, there's uh, there's a there's a lot of homebrewing that happens throughout Europe as well. But that's certainly in Europe part of the history of alcohol production. I don't know about things like sake, but I know that they've been around. You know, the tradition of that is is. But it also makes sense. Like it's fermented rice. Yeah. Uh, so it's a local grain. It's it's your most common crop. You have loads of it, and you have it outside, and you have it in all its all in uh, these uh, these cases and these barrels, and. What happens when some of it ferments one time? Well, it's going to lead you to uh, basically having sake before it was, you gave it a name. And Interestingly, sake sometimes gets called a rice wine, but that's almost a misnomer because it's not a wine in its production process. It's much more of a spirit or even closer to a beer than it is to a wine. It's served hot, right? Uh, I think you can have it hot, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know enough about sake. I know about Roxy from the time there, which was... Uh, fabulous and i've had rakia in the balkans as well which is made from fruit so it's a sort of fruit brandy so there's some really powerful spirits across uh, the balkans and then all over the world in different parts of africa there are different drinks Uh, every almost every culture which is the key thing is that throughout the world most cultures have independently created their own process of making alcohol and in whatever way they've done it. And that's completely independent. So it's not necessarily knowledge that's traveled from one place to another. It's something that is really fundamental in pretty much any society and the history of any people on earth. Although some of the really important advances that were made in areas like Georgia or Iran or Egypt, some of those techniques and practices, I believe, have been transported to help kind of improve the overall global um, production of alcohol. Oh, absolutely, the yeah. History. So well, everyone was doing it, but I kind of on like a basic level. The oldest wine that we're aware of, I think, is from uh, Moldova, Georgia kind of area. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I I thought it was kind of Iran, Georgia kind of place. Yeah, and that's then that sort of got transported over into the Roman Empire, which is where you have a huge love of wine, particularly. Okay, so there's this incredible thing, and you, you honestly have to go look it up. I wanted to try and find some videos for it. Uh, it's it's this uh, it's this run that takes place entirely in a Moldovan wine cellar, and it's one of the biggest. Oh, if you see the maps of this wine cellar, it's absolutely crazy. 
Um, there's a slight section outside, and when they do it in the winter, it's like all snowed, so all the runners in their like uh, sneakers, like they're all slipping on the ice as they like run around. <laughs> and then they have to run through these like cobbled wine cellars. Oh my god! No, th- there was a weird thing where sections of it are dark, and when you complete your time, you have to factor in all the wrong turns you took. Um, and t- and <laughs> people are trying not to twist their ankles because it's all cobbled. And I also had one story that there's a guy who dresses up as death with a scythe and runs <laughs> runs around in the dark, scaring the runners and keeping them going. And <clears throat> the idea of it is to have this have this really fun um, run, and then at the end you get to sit down and have loads of uh, cheese and loads of wine to drink afterwards. As to kind of it, it's purely for fun. It's not like uh, doing the London Marathon. I I thought that they. I was wondering if they were drinking wine as they were going occasionally as well you know like how runners take on water at stations in the marathon they're just going like chugging a glass of pinot grigio or something that's what i thought but the organizer talks about having the wine at the end so Uh, i assume it's like a reward well that makes a lot more sense but i love the idea of just people running around absolutely drunk in the dark being chased by death and there are quite a lot of um, professional athletes who've gone and done this and it's really hard because you can't see the ground's really uneven you have to kind of navigate and you'll take a wrong turn and then you've got to come back and then get back on the track. That's amazing. There's so many great traditions like this which are spread throughout the world. And that's the thing to acknowledge. Alcohol really has a huge traditional role in society all over the world. And it's, it's a huge part of contemporary culture. I mean, we're in Britain and obviously pub culture is a huge thing. It's where people go to socialize. It's where people go to you know to come together as people and, and alcohol is a part of a part of that tradition is the, is the sharing of alcohol that brings people together and that's really really important to acknowledge i think well they're, they're vital uh, watering holes and uh, community spaces and every organization ever any minority any group of immigrants or or anyone of any kind usually develops and builds and then finds themselves going to these places that are natural safe spaces and community spaces for like-minded individuals to you know let go of the shackles of life and and bond and connect with each other yeah absolutely and alcohol the the effects of it which is what we want to get on to talking now we've talked a lot about the the process of how it's made and how it is important in culture and we've been quite enthusiastic and i think what we want to try and do is explore the challenges of alcohol and how we actually live with alcohol in our society understanding its importance in culture is a big part of that so that's why we sort of started with that and there's a really cool tom waits quote which goes i don't have a drinking problem except when i can't get a drink (laughs) thought that might uh fit in this little section but that's actually really important because it leads on to the idea that that drinking is a sign of um strength being able to consume alcohol is a is a a sign of your prowess your masculinity and drinking competitions uh, have forever existed especially in movies um i don't know i'm thinking about indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark where you have to have these drinking competitions to assert your authority over the others yeah exactly and that that is where it starts to get problematic because as well as the the cultural positives the the, the effects alcohol is a psychoactive drug it is a drug 
And the effect of it is, as Oscar Wilde said, in, if taken in sufficient quantities, alcohol will produce drunkenness. Well, it, it's a poison and our bodies have to physically break it down. Yeah. It can have the effect of relaxing you and of releasing endorphins and positive things. It can have positive effects on a chemical level to a very limited point because then... I think it was either the Greeks or the Romans that had a rule for how many drinks you could have in an evening and each drink meant a different level. And they would be like, one drink is really great, two drinks, and you'll be really merry and you'll be open to new ideas. But then they would start to be like, if you're having a fourth drink, your spiral has begun. You will have entered the the angry phase. And then they would say like six drinks and you're violent and aggressive. And they had an idea for kind of what's an acceptable level of drinks to have at a get together or in an evening. And they were consciously aware of, of having too many drinks. Yeah, I think everybody knows the dangers of drink, but that doesn't necessarily make it easy to deal with in society. So I was looking through some World Health Organization reports. And who? The Who? Yes. Yep. Not the band, but the. Yeah. <clears throat> they call me the seeker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, my friend Claire, who has done some work with the World Health Organization and is a researcher in public health. She really kindly provided me some great, great research into this. So thank you to Claire for that. And one of the stats was that alcohol causes 4% of the global disease burden. So that's there's a lot of terms, like global disease burden is a certain term, but there's obviously physical diseases that result from it, alcoholism, and but then there's the social harms as well that are a knock-on effect of that and it's absolutely astounding how much damage it can have what's the what's the general finding of the survey and does it have any suggestions for what's the best kind of course of future action it's still something that's being researched a huge amount and to suggest that one thing is is this just a cheap excuse for lots of wine tasting sessions for me yes in locked, <laughs> in locked rooms oh we're going to consume 30 bottles of wine and see what happens I suspect that instead of consuming wine, they consume just an absolute ton of data. Because uh, I was looking at it, at it just, it's not, it's not glamorous work. I think it's, it's a lot, a lot of crunching numbers and looking at massive statistics and then trying to balance those out with all the different factors that can play a part. Um, so I assume it's examining stuff. For example, you go on a drunken night out, you fall down at the bus stop, you break your wrist. You go and you have your wrist repaired through the NHS. Those costs are factored in through that direction. And then there's people who are having liver transplants because they have permanent liver damage. There are people dealing with long-term health implications from alcoholism. And that that's kind of drain on the uh, health system. Yeah, absolutely. So the drains on the health system. Then there's uh, the sort of negative impact on abilities to work and things like that that can happen that then has a knock on there and the, particularly the social harms are a big one like, like domestic violence yeah violence is a big thing and it, the amount of cases of sexual assault that involve alcohol is staggeringly high as well and those kind of things are really really disturbing and so and the 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 report is i mean it basically starts out by acknowledging that alcohol is a problem Alcohol is a problem and we can't ignore that. As much as we've talked about how wonderful it is in culture and how interesting it is and we've cracked some good jokes, it, yeah, it's really damaging. 
And so... Do you ever find that it... Or do you ever think to yourself that while we're worried about drugs and while we're worried about smoking and we're worried about knife crime and this and that, that alcohol is one of the most common the most commonly used problems that affects all of us and yet seems to be least discussed yeah absolutely it's i think part of understanding that is how ingrained it is in in cultures across the world and that's the thing that we have to acknowledge is we can't get rid of it and understanding alcohol in context is a really really important thing so some different things to consider from various studies i've been looking into this one's from the lima study and it says that increasing urbanization has been associated with both increasing and decreasing alcohol consumption and with the alcohol policy architecture as urban settings require different policy tools to those of rural areas. Adjusting for urbanization can account for trends in either direction. So that's really challenging. The World Health Organization report from 2007 says that the marginalization and stigmatization of heavy drinking can be seen as a part of society's attempts to control and, if possible, reduce the objective social harms from alcohol. However, as noted, this means of control often itself causes further harm. Efforts at social control through stigmatization may result in further marginalization. The committee suggested that the WHO stimulate further studies in this area with particular attention to differences between alcohol policies in the extent to which they stigmatize and to how reduction of stigmatization can be taken into account in alcohol policies. Do you think there's a stigma on um, consuming alcohol? There's no stigma on consuming alcohol, but it's heavily loaded with social, cultural meaning. At what point does a stigma arise? This is Because a- I don't think a stigma arises where, when you are hungover at work the next morning because you've drunk too much the night before. I don't think there's a stigma when you have to cancel your plans for the day because you're sick from being hungover. Or I don't think there's a stigma past a certain level of drinks, a sixth pint. Is there a stigma associated with that? But there might be a stigma associated if you're a woman who's binge drinking as opposed to a man. Yep. So things like that. And depending on your class as well, if you're drinking cheap cider because you know you can't afford champagne every night of the week there's there's a real heavy associations with class and things like particularly in britain and i think wherever you are there's a whole lot of social and cultural norms associated with alcohol so it's not the drinking of it isn't the stigma so you mean there's a stigma with say like a wkd or a white lightning compared to say uh a lagavulin whiskey yeah absolutely and There are a lot of drunks in cinema and things like that who are kind of lauded for their, you know, like James Bond is an absolute drunken asshole, but he's kind of celebrated. But it's it's a vodka martini, so it's it's classy. Yeah, if he was drinking White Lightning, you wouldn't think he was so glamorous, you know, and that's... Yeah, James Bond just necked 16 cans of Fosters. (laughs) And we're like, and then he's like, come on, darling, give us a kiss. (laughs) It is essentially what he does, but even more forcefully. So, you know. Um, Blofeld, I'll have ya! <laughs> but interestingly, things like WKD and Alcopops, that was a big thing in the early 2000s. And the regulation of them has been interesting because they were particularly marketed to like a younger audience and to an, 
and they were very sugary to make them sweet and enjoyable because often alcohol is an acquired taste. Um, certainly things like spirits straight are pretty tough going sometimes. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple more quotes from the World Health Organization reports. The harmful use of alcohol is a particularly grave threat to men. It is the leading risk factor for death in males aged 15 to 59, mainly due to injuries, violence and cardiovascular diseases. Globally, 6.2% of all male deaths are attributable to alcohol, compared to 1.1% of female deaths. Men also have far greater rates of total burden attributed to alcohol than women. 7.4% for men compared to 1.4% for women. Men outnumber women 4 to 1 in weekly episodes of heavy drinking, most probably the reason for their higher deaths and disability rates. Men also have much lower rates of abstinence compared to women. Lower socioeconomic status and educational levels result in a greater risk of alcohol-related death, disease and injury, a social determinant that is greater for men than women. From the World Health Organization report in 2011, the committee emphasized that the form of implementation of an effective measure needs to be appropriate for a particular society. Here, the research literature is often of little utility, and the committee stressed that practical experience in the places which have implemented the measure needs to be collected, collated and disseminated. Community actions to address alcohol problems are of special importance, particularly in settings where unrecorded consumption is high. It is certainly not sufficient to pass a law without means of implementation, and the development of an inventory of practical experience in implementation in different societal circumstances is an urgent need. So that's all about understanding the social context. And uh, we'll come on to the implementation of policy again in a minute because what, for example, is very, very difficult is things like the black market. And we'll, we'll come to that in just a moment. The committee viewed early intervention and treatment for people with alcohol use disorders as potentially fulfilling three goals. As a humanitarian approach to the alleviation of human suffering, as a method of reducing alcohol consumption and harm in the population, and as a way of reducing alcohol-related healthcare costs. People who drink alcohol excessively place a disproportionate burden on health, social care and criminal justice systems compared to lighter drinkers or abstainers. They also contribute to the disproportionate amount of the more intangible costs of excessive drinking, including harm to families and problems in the workplace. The committee found that in most countries the population of persons seeking or in need of treatment is heterogeneous in terms of alcohol problem severity, and also in terms of co-occurring conditions such as physical and mental disorders. Hence, the range of interventions necessary to serve the needs of this population is of necessity broad, ranging from brief interventions in primary care to more inter intensive treatment in specialised settings. So a couple of points that have come up in there that have reminded me. When we were at school, did we ever receive those like PSHE lessons about alcohol consumption? I can't remember any if, if uh, we might have. Because I can remember them about drugs and I can remember them about unprotected sex. Yeah. I, I just think it's a problem that we don't talk about. Not really. Yeah, we, we do need to try and think about alcohol slightly differently, I would say, and understand the the effect of it. Largely in, in the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's essentially a group of wealthier nations. Implementation of policies is very effective and things like state monopolies on alcohol so places like Norway have alcohol can only bought, be bought from liquor stores that are run by the state so they can regulate how many stores are in a certain area and the opening hours and these kind of things and these kind of controls have a significant effect on uh, on reducing the the burden of alcohol Scandinavia so, ahead of us again <laughs> yeah. But as we've seen from those quotes, 
it is really complex and it's really important to understand the local environment in which you're implementing those policies. And one of the big issues in other parts of the world where you have a much higher black market is if you introduce a lot of state controls on alcohol, you actually make the black market a lot more appealing. And for an example of state control, of course, we had to look into prohibition a little bit because this is an absolutely classic example of trying to regulate alcohol in ways that don't necessarily work as the government hoped. Well, it's absolutely incredible because you would think, oh, if you identify that there's a problem, if you ban that problem, it won't be a problem anymore. Boy, were they wrong. Prohibition is the the banning of alcohol, and we're particularly referring to in the United States. Yeah, so prohibition began in 1920 when the 18th Amendment was passed. There was there'd been a real push for a number of years to get rid of alcohol because it was a problem on the country and it was affecting the population. And they hoped that if they passed an amendment that it would be banned forever, the problem would just disappear. The exact opposite happened. And it's inherently because people did not want to stop drinking. And they didn't want it to be regulated. And they turned it all over to the crime industry. It is believed that part of the reason that prohibition came about is that urbanization was occurring at a very rapid level and there was a huge influx of immigration into those urban areas. Fear about urbanization, overpopulation, fear of immigrants and all of those combining factors led to this moral panic. And when you're in a moral panic, it's argued that you will sometimes connect to different worries together with one cause which isn't necessarily true and people began to fear that alcohol was the root cause of all the problems that were happening which is partly why they kind of tried to push it through which is interesting that we're still debating this because as the world health organization report said we still can see urbanization as an increasing or decreasing factor yeah and slightly separate to that but it kind of in the same time period we just had world war one and beer was uh beer was german that was what everybody thought it was. Everyone's like, beer represents Germany and we don't want to fund the German war effort. So I believe during the war, they stopped uh, buying as much beer. That's the impression that I've been getting. And that kind of idea kind of fed through afterwards as they kind of start going into the Great Depression. Whereabouts have you been researching this? Oh, I was listening to a Wondery podcast that's about the history of America. And they were going through a section on, on Prohibition. What's the name of the podcast again? The podcast is called American History Tellers, and it's a Wondery production. Essentially, uh, to kind of summarize really quickly, what happened was they they banned alcohol, but all the richest and most powerful people in America just stockpiled. It wasn't illegal to possess alcohol, so you just had to try and suggest you had the alcohol before the ban. There was this one guy who bought, I think, a thousand cases of champagne ready for when Prohibition arrived. Because they knew they didn't want to go without. So the shortages were coming up. So if you had the resources, everybody pre-bought all the alcohol beforehand. Now, if you didn't have the resources, you could do one of two things. You could start illegally making it yourself. And loads and loads of moonshine started to be produced. Local distilleries. People were trying to make alcohol from paint thinner. People were trying to make alcohol from chemicals. The impact it had on the health industry was skyrocketed. People were dying of poisoning and various illnesses affected by the fact that they were drinking terrible drinks. Smuggling then rapidly 
um, increased. Canada had had a prohibition previously in, I think, 1916, but they then got rid of it. And all of the Canadian business owners who were producing alcohol saw this as a massive opportunity to make loads of money. In Canada and in the Caribbean and coming from Europe, alcohol was basically smuggled across the borders. And that could come in, pirates were bringing it in on boats, and then smaller boats would come out offshore to collect it from those from those individuals. Yeah, They were running it through tunnels, across bridges, across waterways. It was coming in across into Detroit from Canada, down past Niagara. Anywhere that you could go to get it, it was coming in. And if you couldn't get it to come in, you'd left America and you went on a booze cruise or a booze tour and they were taking you to havana they were taking you to mexico they were taking you wherever they could so that all the people who could afford it could go and consume alcohol speakeasies blew up and uh you you could have a thousand speakeasies in a city easy and all these clubs were making a massive racket out of getting hold of this illegal alcohol or brewing it themselves in sometimes massive massive productions and then selling it to everybody who wanted to buy it but then it's the poorer people who can't afford to do these things who are then making it out of paint thinner and dying. Well, and the Great Depression is happening at the same time. So they're losing their jobs. They're starving. The mob takes over and Al Capone is kind of one of the like lead figures in this. And they, they buy the police. The police become entirely corrupt. And organized crime starts to run everything. And if you don't enable them in the in the transitioning and the supplying of alcohol they're killing you getting rid of you destroying your businesses and what eventually happened was after sort of 12 years or so uh, 13 years people realized that crime had overrun the country that alcohol was still being consumed at a level prior to prohibition beginning it hadn't decreased at all and people wanted it more than ever if they couldn't get it they wanted it they, people feared that if they continued in the direction they were going and they didn't repeal it, it would get out of hand to such an extent that the country would fall off the cliff. And Roosevelt came in, replacing Herbert Hoover. And he came in with his New Deal. So he came in to fix the Great Depression, provide prosperity for America. And part of that was to bring back the... to repeal this amendment. And then I think the numbers are slightly inflated maybe, but within the first two days of alcohol being legal, taxation led to a 1.9 million influx of revenue in today's money into the government through taxation. Yeah. And business boomed. And taxation is one of the major controls that is uh, an option for in today's world as well. Obviously, taxation is uh, you know a thorny subject, but it certainly has... It is an effective control if used in the right way. And that's the dangerous thing, obviously, with countries that have large black markets is if you just massively tax. It also uh, gives you the money. So if you're taxing all of this and it goes into your health system, your health system is able to prepare for the, I know it seems counterproductive, the health problems that will come from the consumption of that alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. But if the alcohol is being consumed anyway and you're not getting any money from it and it's coming in illegally then you don't even have the money to support those people when they're when they're suffering yeah it's the the data suggests that um that effective taxation is actually um a really cost effective way of the government 
doing these things and the other options are things like so we said state monopolies licensing and just effective regulation of those licenses for premises that are selling alcohol all of these things bring down drinking rates and I, think, I think there was a lady called moonshine mary and she actually got arrested because she the moonshine that she was producing was so toxic that it killed a number of people in contemporary society as well there's uh, the state of gujarat in india which is quite close to my heart friends there and stayed there a few a uh, little bit of time and they are actually a dry state as well alcohol is illegal there but you can still get it but what happens and if you if you sort of search it in the news there's occasionally mass deaths from bad alcohol basically which is really quite yeah it's really challenging so prohibition still has those it's not just purely a product of that situation in history in america anywhere where there's prohibition I mean, so essentially what we're saying is prohibition doesn't work. It's not the best way. to No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't work. No, prohibition so doesn't work. Take smoking as an example. Do you think that greater regulations upon smoking and an awareness of the actual uh, causes and effects, long term and short term of consumption, combined with maybe a slight change in societal understanding and self-policing would lead to any change in the problems that we have with well yeah i think we've seen in britain with smoking there's been a huge investment in regulating smoking so you know the advertising of it the uh, the sales of it at certain ages now up to 18 and the banning of it in public places and the rates of smoking in this country have dropped drastically uh over the course of our lifetimes and i remember still going to gigs when we were 16 and people could still smoke inside and it was just like thick and heavy with smoke but that's just stopped now you know you can't smoke inside pubs there used to be pubs that just full of smoke i think with alcohol certainly taxation regulation is is really important in bringing down drinking rates the thing is to understand is that it's eliminating drinking is un you know prohibition basically that's not realistic and particularly it's because as we've explored alcohol is so important in culture it has a huge historical significance and you're not going to get rid of that and the best way is to manage it effectively as a society it seems to me in in a way it's one of the most complex issues because it's not a moral issue there's a lot of moralizing about alcohol but alcohol is not a morally good or bad thing it is not you know the ethics of it aren't something like equal pay which is fairly obvious that should happen alcohol is something that can be incredibly damaging but it's also something that's very important in in culture and to to ban culture even if it's you know in that form doesn't really help i don't think and it ignores you have to give people choice yeah and it's the, I think it's going to be an interesting debate that we'll come on to with drugs more soon because alcohol is a drug. It's, you know, we class it differently to things like cannabis and cocaine and these kind of things. But actually, I think we're going to, I think society is generally, there's a lot more legalization of cannabis at the moment. And we may well find more and more in terms of drugs and regulation is more effective than leaving it to the black market. We shall see. That will be uh, that will be something that we'll think will be a big debate in our lifetime. On a slightly lighter note, 
as we wrap up, because I think that's a really good summary of kind of what we think is going to go forward. And not to dissuade from the importance that we've just put on on the problems of alcohol, but what is your favorite drink? Like, what is one of the, your... <laughs> of, of all your experiences, I don't mean like binge drinking or anything like that. When you think about those few really nice drinks you've had, what are they? I think I... When I think of my fondest experiences of drinking, it's to do with where I was and the people I was with at the time. So actually drinking rakia at a festival in Serbia with a bunch of Russians who I'd never met. I was just by myself and I went to this thing and sort of vaguely knew these people. And we didn't speak a lot of the same language, but we shared a drink together. And it was a beautiful experience. I loved that. Having a few beers at Christmas on the beach in Australia is pretty good. But I think beer for me is is my drink of choice. Um, Also, I really do like a nice proper scotch. I, I just have such an admiration for the art of it. The craft of the process is way to make whiskey boring. <laughs> what's your what's your favorite drink? Of late, I've been enjoying wine and gin and, and gin a little bit more. But like you say, it's it's the it's the moment that you're in. I quite like trying interesting drinks. So even though it kind of sucked, that smoked beer we had was uh, quite fun to oh, try. Yeah. And uh, when I was in America recently, we had some really strong porters that would uh, oof, I do love catch a, a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's great. It's really fun going on um, whiskey tasting tours to distilleries, learning about the process, yeah. trying them at different stages, trying them when they're clear, trying them when they've um, been cast for a few years. At the place we went to, they would work with local breweries to just um, cask their whiskey in beer barrels and different types of beer barrels, and they would give different additional flavors into the whiskey, and then the beer would be made in the whiskey barrel, so the same kind of goes both ways that's that for me is the thing is that i try and enjoy is just uh a either being with friends or b kind of enjoying the craft of it which makes me sound really old but hey um you know it's happening as you said last time i'm going bald but yeah like you uh, like you say it's um they're at their most enjoyable when you are able to get together with a bunch of other people and uh share that celebration yeah absolutely share it and um isolated drinking is definitely something to be more wary of and understanding yes do not drink in the arctic word <laughs> of advice from james harris Ice, isolated was that a pun that you were making no i meant because like you'd be on your own oh fine fine like, there aren't many people out there yeah sure that makes but, sense. okay i mean i wouldn't yeah. imagine going to the arctic by yourself there's only a few people that do that and they're like i can't uh, imagine drinking would be on their agenda i'll tell you uh a fun fact um whiskey isn't actually good to drink when you're hypothermic you know when people go, you know when people are really cold and they're like, "Oh, quick!" Like St. Bernards have brandy around the neck is, is the story in. And, and people and people do it, but all it does is um, dilate the capillaries, make them smaller, so less blood gets around your body, huh. and you don't feel the cold. It ah. it takes away your sensation of feeling the cold. That's why you know when you go out and it's a cold winter night, and then you drink ten pints, and then you go back out afterwards. And <laughs> no, you I ju- don't know. That. And you're just in a t-shirt, and you you go home in a t-shirt even though it's freezing cold. It's because you can't feel the actual temperature, but your body is still going hypothermic. And uh, I've heard sort of good few rescue stories where people had taken whiskey with them, and it was really cold, like and it was snowing. And they were, you know, partway through their hike and they were giving themselves that reward to pick them up. But it actually helps. Uh, it makes things, uh, speeds up the problem. Oh, God. It's just something to consider because I think it's one of those things a bit like uh, put butter on a burn that everybody just, people just do, but is exactly the opposite thing you should be doing. You shouldn't put butter on a burn? No. Oh. It just, it just uh, boils. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. 
Moonshine. You said there was. Where did the term moonshine come? You mentioned that once or twice, and you said. Oh, it. Yeah. So when I was talking about the the monks and uh, that came down from the monasteries in uh, after the English malt tax in 1725, I think, because they went and started having to produce alcohol illegally, they had to do it at night so that the smoke from the chimneys wouldn't be spotted against the night sky. And because they were always up late at night doing all their brewing, they called it moonshine. Ah, I didn't know that until now. Thank you very much for sharing that with me. That's, uh... Anything else you want to add? Well, uh, we've also got the sound of the week, which is recorded slightly inebriated in Berlin with our good friends Dom, Max, Evelyn, and our theme tune composer, Tora. And we were trying to do an interview for the previous episode on time but alcohol was perhaps the cause of that not making the cut last time round. Time, as you say, it's quite a transform- transformative journey, basically. <laughs> what are you laughing about? Well, I'm laughing at the fact that he's <laughs> laughing at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a f- serious conversation. Get some more beers in, go on. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I have to cut a lot of that. <laughs> time, is rel- time is relative, first of all. So once you grow older, I think you perceive time a lot of, lot different automatically. Time is just an inevitable thing that you have to make the most out of. Max, any views on time? I want to go to the Spiti. <laughs> <laughs> and I think with that, we'll finish with this uh, lovely quote that I think summarizes our discussion of alcohol. This comes from Terry Pratchett's book, Mott. There are better things in the world than alcohol, Albert. Oh, yes, sir but alcohol sort of compensates for not getting them. <laughs> a lovely reading. A, a good voice there, James. Thank you very much. That was my best. That's a perfect album. <laughs> so from one person who doesn't drink so much, that's you. Yep. And from me who... Enjoys a tipple of creme de pêche. <laughs> creme de pêche. <laughs> There's some weird alcohols out there. If, uh, if you have any particular favourite alcohols or specialities that you've tried, uh, tell us about them anything more that we've missed out on a discussion of alcohol please do let us know because it's a tough subject and we're we're interested to learn more and we're happy to come back Um, and i really want to get into uh, bars pubs speakeasies clubs uh, on a future episode absolutely you're off to sweden i'm Um, off to spain yeah i know yeah we're both going right away i'm going for a wedding in the woods it's gonna be great Uh, thank you very much for listening and we'll come back to you with stories of Spain and Sweden next time. And if you, in the meantime, would like to give us a little review or a rating, we would really appreciate that. And it really helps us find more uh, more audience, which is always great. It's what we like. We like to discuss with you and like to hear back from you guys. Yeah. And remember, imbibe responsibly. Please do. Please do do drink responsibly. I think we have to be responsible and say that a lot because, as we've discovered, drinking irresponsibly has major consequences. Thank you, and uh, have a a great time. That's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.